0: If you want to turn to Matthew chapter 15, and we're going to dive right in tonight. Matthew chapter 15, and let me give you the, well, I'll tell you what, before I give you the outline, let me ask you to bow your heads and pray, and then we'll get into the chapter. Father, we appreciate the opportunity to gather. Even if it is in this format, Lord, it's still an honor to open up your word and talk about You, learn from You. Please let the Holy Spirit be our guide. Please, Lord, speak to our hearts. Spend some time with us this evening as, as we have set aside time to hear from You, Lord, to draw nigh to You. We, we fully expect that You will fulfill Your promise to draw nigh to us. Please help us now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, chapter 15, I believe, breaks into three parts. Um, if you're on the PBI WhatsApp group, you've already received the, uh, the outline, but for those of you that haven't seen it yet, verses 1 to 20, I would say, far off in heart. Far off in heart. Verses 21 to 31, far off, get helped. We're going to see a specific lady who who comes from far off, she gets helped. Far off, get helped. And then part three, verses 32 to 39, feeding the hungry. Feeding the hungry. It's the feeding of the 4,000. All right, Uh, Matthew chapter 15 and verse number 1. The Bible says, Then came came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying... Now, bear in mind, they're not in Jerusalem. Jesus is up north, if you might remember from the chapter before. Uh, They're up in the land of Gennesaret. So Jesus is up in the north, and these scribes and Pharisees, they're from Jerusalem. They came from there, and they're up in the north. And the people... now all the Jews had a lot of uh, cultural baggage that went with them. But the people down near Jerusalem, they had a bit more religious baggage than others. They were very bound to the traditions of Judaism, as you'll see in the story. Verse 2, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? Now, the specific custom that the disciples of Christ were transgressing is, is stated at the end of verse 2, for they wash not their hands when they eat bread. Now, might I just quickly point out that this is a hygienic custom. I have no issues with this particular tradition of the elders as it pertains to hygiene, as it pertains to a physical standard, right, to maintain good health and cleanliness wash your hands before you eat. That makes perfect sense. The problem here, as you'll see there, and and this is a very layered problem, a very deep problem, but the problem is they they had turned this into a spiritual thing. That if you don't wash your hands before you eat, then you are somehow spiritually defiled and that God would see that as as a sin. Now what is also going on as you can see these scribes and Pharisees have come to Jesus and they're asking they're asking a question why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders that they have in their minds elevated the tradition of the elders to be equal with the authority of God's word so when you look at, especially the Jews, they had the Torah, they had the Old Testament, they had the law. So, thou shalt not lie, steal, kill, those kind of things. Honor thy father and mother, as we'll see in a moment. In the Jewish mindset, especially the scribes and Pharisees, they had elevated wash your hands before you eat to the same position as one of those very clear commands of God. Now. In, in our day and time, right, this is still an issue. People take man-made commandments. They take society-born standards and elevate them to a position equal with God's Word as far as authority goes. I know when I was growing up, when I was young, there were lots of things that we did. We didn't know why we did them. We didn't know why we were doing it. We did it because... Grandpa did it. Grandma did it. The elders did it. Uh, I, I found the, true to be, uh, the same to be true here in, in Africa, especially with ancestor worship. Why do people do what they do? That's just it's what we've always done. And to step out and do something differently than what has always been done, in the mind of most people, that is a sin. That is a crime against God to transgress the ancestors. Now that's not limited, by the way, to African or black culture. That same mindset exists, doesn't matter the color of your skin, right? It exists all over the world. But as I was growing up, I grew up as a Catholic, and every time we would drive by a Catholic church, my dad, I saw him do this all all my life growing up, he would nod towards the church. If we were in a full-on conversation, if something was on the radio, it didn't matter he would nod to the church as he drove past it. One day I asked him, Dad, why do you nod to the church every time? And he said, Son, in, in the Catholic Church, we keep some of the bread for the Lord's Supper, and we believe that that bread will become Jesus's real, literal body when the priest holds it up on Sunday. So because the potential for Jesus' presence is there in the building, we nod towards that, they called it the tabernacle, that, that uh, little box they held the bread in, we nod towards that. Now, he felt as if, it, as if he, were, if he were to drive past the building without nodding to it, then he would have been sinning against God. In his mind, that little custom of nodding towards that tabernacle was on the same level with, Thou shall not kill, thou shall not steal, right? It was was that serious. Every night before we went to bed, my dad would take a bottle of holy water and, and tip it over a little bit on his finger and then sprinkle that holy water in various directions. I asked him as well, Dad, why do you do that? He said, well, I think that the holy water drives the devil away and it brings blessing on whoever it touches. So I sprinkle a little bit towards my parents, a little bit... He had a, a well, still has a daughter that lives in, in the U.K. He'd sprinkle a little bit that way. Any direction, right, that, where he considered loved ones to be, he would sprinkle a little bit that way. There's nothing biblical about that. That is a man-made tradition, but he felt as if if he didn't do that, then he would be dishonoring those people, almost bringing a curse upon them because there was something he could have done. Now those are just a couple examples, right? I'm sure that you could tell your own stories. There are things we do that we get it stuck in our heads that these things that are man-made commands, man-made precepts, that somehow they make us more spiritually acceptable to God. We have to be careful to recognize these three these, uh, three categories. Personal standards. Societal standards. Cultural standards and God's standards, right? We always need to be aware of what God's standards are. He's clearly revealed them to us in the Bible, and even before that, He had revealed it to us in our conscience. But society has a way of saying, um, this is how we've done it, so this is the only way to do it. See, and if if you are not aware of God's standards, you start to judge everything Only by society standards you end up condemning the innocent, which is exactly what's going on here. So verse 3, But he answered and said unto them, Why do ye also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? I like how Jesus has immediately pointed out the other standard, the real standard. They think the disciples have transgressed because the traditions weren't followed. Jesus takes it a step up and says, Ooh, Your tradition on this particular case, right? Not all traditions are bad, but in this case, the tradition, their traditions, it it goes against God's command. Now He's going to tell us which tradition goes against God's command. Why do you also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? For God commanded, saying, "Honor thy father and mother." Now that's Exodus chapter twenty, verse twelve. Now that's clearly stated. There's there's a lot that goes into honoring your father or mother, and it depends on the stage of life, right? When kids are young, the best way to honor father and mother is through obedience, right? Um, Respectful obedience. But then even as you get older, after you've moved out, started your own life, your own family, this command is still applicable. You still need to honor father and mother. It just takes on a different manifestation. And as your parents get older, you still have the biblical mandate to care for them, uh, especially when they get to a stage when they can no longer provide for themselves, as you'll see here. So verse 4, For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and mother, and, he's going to emphasize it now, he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. Now this is stated in Exodus chapter 21, verse 17. Exodus 21, verse 17. And Jesus, what He does is He gives the command, and then He gives another verse to show just how serious that commandment is. The penalty for dishonoring father or mother is death. Can you imagine, right, if, if this was signed into South African legislation to say, you know, especially with all these regulations we're finding in the times of COVID, <laughs> Imagine if someone were to were to say, "Listen, we've seen a great problem in homes. kids are not respecting their parents. It's so serious this is this is how we're going to handle it. Wow, there'd be a lot of a lot of funerals happening in the next few months. but that's how serious that command was. God takes that very seriously. Look at what the scribes and pharisees what what Jewish society had had I want to say created. They they found a loophole in the law and they thought they thought that it, it was a way of bypassing the honor thy father and mother. You'll see in verse five. But ye say, Whosoever shall say to his father or his mother, it is a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, and honoureth and honor not his father or his mother, he shall be free. So he's he's free he's free of the responsibility of Helping his parents. Now, what does he mean? They say it's a gift. In Mark chapter seven, verse eleven, um, the the author there actually uses the word korban, which was the Hebrew word for a gift or the treasury. Right? It could also be. It's also translated that way sometimes. So they would say korban. So mom and or dad would come to their grown child and say, "Listen, we're." unable to, to take care of ourselves. Can you please assist us? That was part of what God intended when He said, honor father and mother. And what the, the standard of Jewish society for that time was, to you could say to your parents, no, sorry, mom, dad, the resources that we could use to support you, we have offered to God as a vow. Now you can read about this in Leviticus chapter 27. There's a whole long list of various ways that you could uh, offer your resources, and that it was a legitimate thing. People could offer things at the tabernacle and say, listen, my land, my, my possessions, even myself, I will make myself available to help here at the tabernacle. You could devote yourself to the Lord. Well. And then in Leviticus 27, what you could do is, at any point in the future, if you wanted to redeem that offered uh, resource, you'd have to add 20%, a fifth. You'd have to pay an extra fifth of whatever it was worth. So what the what a lot of people were doing, they could see mom and dad were getting up there in years, and that that child of theirs, I say child, you understand this is a grown person by now, they take their savings account and, and go give it at the temple and say to the priest, uh, you hang on to this for a while. And then when mom and dad say, we need help, their child says, hey, listen, sorry, gave it to the temple. But then as soon as mom and dad are gone, they go down to the temple, pay that 20% handling fee and get their resources back. And this way, it did cost them a little bit, right? It cost them 20%, but they didn't have to give it all away to mom and dad. And the Jews had thought, well, you see, this is a very holy way to handle it. And mom and dad, sorry, we're not going to help you because we've given it. And they felt excused. They felt that, that it was justified because they had given it at the temple that temporary, uh, for that temporary purpose. Jesus is aware of the intentions of their heart the reason they were the reason they looked for this loophole is because they had no intention of honoring father and mother. They had completely the Jews had missed the point of why God had given that law. They were abusing another one of God's commandments with the whole offering at the temple thing. So verse 6 he says you guys say that you'll be free that you're under no penalty of law no guilt at all Thus have you made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. And it is often the case that a man-made standard undoes, right? Can it can undo what God is trying to accomplish. I, I've even seen it, I've seen it in, in our church one time. I had a had a, a gentleman in the church. He said, Pastor. And he was very agitated about this. I mean, he came to me on multiple occasions. He said, Pastor, you know, whenever we take up the offering, there's so much ruckus in our church. People are talking and there's people laughing and there's, uh, you know, there's so much noise. He said the offering should be a very solemn time. We should all stay quiet. I mean, he, his attitude really suffered. Me personally, I enjoy all of the, I'm not going to use the word ruckus, I'm going to use the word liveliness. Right? It wasn't out of hand, people weren't being strange, they were just talking to each other, laughing, fellowshipping, using that spare few minutes to say hello and catch up for a minute. Uh, but you see, this, this woman, the way he had grown up, was during that part of the service, you stay extremely quiet, it's very solemn, reverential and all of that. So he had got it into his head that if anybody makes a noise during that time, then you're, you're, you're offending God. Well, see now, he starts to get angry and starts to get bitter. The attitude goes south. That begins to affect his time at the church. He can't enjoy the service. He can't get as much out of it. That man-made standard, once it got violated, it ended up defiling him in worse ways. It's a very dangerous thing. Make sure you know God's standards. And live life in accordance with that. Verse 7, Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying... Now this is interesting that Jesus uses it like this. He's going to quote Isaiah 29, verse 13. By the way, that's the attendance code for tonight. Isaiah 29, verse 13. Now, if you go back, and we will in just a moment go back to Isaiah 29, you'll see it there. Isaiah was prophesying to his generation. He was not The primary goal of that verse, of that passage, was to speak to those Jews back in 720 B.C. But there's a dual application because, although it was immediately true in Isaiah's day, the people of Jesus' time, it was also true of them. So this prophecy was uh, re-fulfilled with this evil and adulterous generation that Jesus is speaking to. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So this is in my outline, far off in heart. They were going through very religious motions. They were saying things about God, visiting the temple, offering their resources at the temple. On the surface, it looks very spiritual. looks very godly. looks very religious. But in, in their heart, what was their intention? To get out of helping mom and dad. Which is more important, making an offering at the temple or honoring father or mother? Now, there's nothing wrong with making an offering at the temple. By the way, there's nothing wrong with washing your hands before you eat. That is, it's perfectly acceptable to have that tradition. Please understand. It's perfectly fine to say, I would rather people stay quiet during the offering at church. It's fine if you prefer that. We're all allowed to have our preferences. You can have your convictions, but you need to be very careful that you know where the line is drawn to say, God's standard is this, I prefer this. Never make the mistake of taking your preferences and putting them in the place of the commandments of God, or elevating them to the same level of importance and authority. That's what the Jews were doing. Talking religious, but in their heart, they weren't seeking to honor God's command by respecting and helping their parents. Verse nine, but in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. There's the problem. they had elevated man-made commandments to be on the same level with the Word of God. Now notice, Their worship was vain. It was useless. They were going through the motions, but it was absolutely useless because they were not honoring the way God told them to live their lives. Notice the connection here. In vain they do worship me. If I'm I'm making the correct connection, honoring father and mother is one of many ways to worship God. When you take that command seriously, and you do so because... God, God desires for society, for families to, to operate in this way. When you do this out of a love for your parents and a fear of God, this is a way of worshiping God. But He said, you Jews, the way you're going about it, with all this r- religious ritual, that's absolutely useless because your heart's not in it. Notice another connection in verse 9. There's a connection between God's Word... His commands, and worship. If you're going to worship the Father, you have to do it in spirit and in truth. You need to do it genuine, and you need to do it the way He commanded. Let me ask you to come back to Isaiah 29. Let me show you what we find in the context that Jesus referenced. Isaiah 29 and get verse 9. Isaiah 29 verse 9. Isaiah 29 verse 9 He says stay yourselves and wonder cry ye out and cry they are drunken but not with wine they stagger but not with strong drink so they're drunk but not not on wine they're intoxicated what does that mean they're they're not in control of their of their good senses what has them intoxicated not wine not not some other drug As we're going to read down, you'll see they are intoxicated, they are drunk with the traditions of their elders. They are drunk on religious ritual. Look what they had to give up. Verse 10, we'll see it as we go on. For the Lord hath poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep, and hath closed your eyes. The prophets and your rulers, the seers, hath he covered. Now this we've looked at on other occasions. right? Because these people had rejected God's clearly revealed truth, God's giving them what they deserve. In verse 11, And the vision of all is become unto you as the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one that is learned, this is the educated guy, saying, Read this, I pray thee, and he saith, I cannot, for it is sealed. You know, he looks at it logically. He says, How can I read it if I can't open it? Rational thinking there. So they hand him the book the book that God wants him to read, read this. No, he makes an excuse why, no, 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 I can't open his sealed. Verse 12, and the book is delivered to him that is not learned, uneducated, saying, read this, I pray thee, and he saith, I'm not learned. Now, he might be able to read. I assume that that would be the case because they're telling him to read it. You wouldn't ask a person to read it if he can't read. You wouldn't expect that. But he says, I'm not learned. I don't have a high education. You know, I never went to Bible school, and, you know, that's just not my thing. Excuses for why they don't want to read the book. The book. Verse 13, wherefore the Lord said, wherefore, do you see that? Because of this attitude towards the book, they don't want to read the book wherefore the lord said for as much as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me but have removed their heart far from me and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men so their version of fearing god their version of worshiping god it comes down because their forefathers did it this way other people said this is the way it should be done they did not pay attention to what god had revealed And then he goes on, you can see verse 14, Therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people. And he goes on to talk about how they're going to be punished, which did come to pass. Come back to Matthew chapter 15 now. So if you're going to worship God properly, you you need to take that book that's being offered to you and read. And see see where God's heart is at. Yeah? And do not expect other people to live up to your standard. Make sure they're living... If you want to expect something from them, they should live up to God's standard. You should accept that. Verse 10, And he called the multitude and said unto them, Hear and understand. Now, anytime Jesus introduces uh, one of his statements or illustrations in such a way, he's going to use a parable, right? He he did this in Matthew 13. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. It's the same thing, a little shortened here. Hear and understand. So think deep about what I'm saying. Verse 11, Not that which goeth into the mouth defileth a man, but that which cometh out of the mouth, this defileth a man. Now be careful, because I have seen people use or try to use verse 11 to say that it's perfectly okay to... Uh, Put a cigarette in your mouth or put drugs or alcohol, anything in your mouth, and it won't devile you. It's perfectly fine to do that stuff, to consume those things. Now, you have to take verse 11 within its context. You have to think about the the greater conversation that's going on and what they had just accused Jesus of and his disciples. They had eaten something with unwashed hands. So you have to remember that when you read verse 11. Not that which goeth into the mouth defileth a man. Jesus is saying this in direct relation to the accusation in verse 2. If you eat something, if you didn't wash your hands and you pick it up and eat it, that does not spiritually defile you. Now the reason I point this out is because others have tried to say this is a bit of a contradiction. Because in the Old Testament, you do find where the Jews had a dietary law. They're not supposed to eat a number of things, unclean meats. And if they eat them, then they were defiled. And yes, that, you don't find Jesus saying anything that contradicts that. Jesus is not discussing the dietary law in this passage. What he's discussing is the, the tradition of the elders and why that tradition does not hold any spiritual weight. It's perfectly fine as a custom. You want to follow that tradition, help yourself. But don't think that it's going to improve the spiritual condition of your heart. It might affect the physical condition of your heart and of your stomach, right? It's a good idea to wash your hands before you eat. It's not going to make you any more righteous or clean in God's sight, though. Verse 11, Not that which goeth into the mouth defileth a man. But that which cometh out of the mouth, this defileth a man. Why? Matthew 12, verse 34. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. So what's coming out of the mouth, right? If it's defiled, if it's some sort of ill speech, that indicates a problem in the heart. That defiles the man. That unbridled heart that pours out of the mouth. Now, it's not limited to things that you say, but also things that you do. And we'll see that a little later in the passage. Then came his disciples and said unto him, knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended after they heard this saying? See, the Pharisees thought, man, how we have been doing this for hundreds of years. And now Jesus is trying to say that our entire society, the standard by which we live, is, is wrong. They're, they're, they're greatly offended at his, at his teaching. Now think of it this way. <clears throat> when we look at Romans chapter 14, right? that chapter discusses gray areas. We're going to learn that soon on Sunday night, uh, an upcoming Sunday night. Are we supposed to do things that offend people? Well, no. If we know that something offends another person, we should refrain from doing it in their, in their proximity. That's the New Testament standard. Paul laid that out quite clearly, right? 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 10, Romans 14, that's the standard. So, if, if, if eating something with unwashed hands offends the scribes and Pharisees, then why not respect their preference and, and wash your hands, as long as you're in their presence, just wash your hands, and that way you don't offend the scribes and Pharisees. Why not go about it that way? Why did Jesus see that it was okay to stand up against their preference, point out that they're wrong in how they're applying it, why would it be okay to offend them in this in this case? In 1 Corinthians 10 where it says giving no offense to the Jew, to the Gentile, to the Church of God. So why is it okay here? In Romans 14 especially, you need to recognize that those gray areas, right, such as if you think that it is right to wash your hands before you eat, and you think that there's a spiritual connection, if you think that, if you're fully persuaded of that from some, for some reason, help yourself. But as soon as you say, my preference is a command of God that everybody must follow, you've gone too far, and you need to be rebuked. As soon as you've elevated your preference to equal footing with the command of God, then it's okay to to step up and to speak out and to say, no, 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 I'm sorry. You're welcome to be persuaded in your mind of whatever you are doing there, but to say that I'm wrong, to say my disciples are wrong because we're not following your tradition, no, gone too far. So that's why it's all right for Jesus to do what He's doing, say what He's saying. He has to point out that they have created an unfair and unjust standard. Verse 13, but he answered and said, "And said, every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted, shall be rooted up." So these folks had found, had put their roots down in traditions, in religious ritual. They did not have any roots. they, they had not been planted by God. In that they did not submit to what God said. They were not trying to live according to the word of God. If they were in that position of saying, God, please just tell us what to do. We'll apply your standards in our life. Then the Father would have planted them nicely in His Word into that spiritual kingdom. right? That would have been the case. But these people were not in submission to the Father. Jesus says these people that have put deep roots down in religious ritual tradition, they're going to be cast out. Verse 14, here, here comes a brutal statement. Let them alone. People sometimes ask, you know, how how many times should we reach out to somebody that is in a false church or, you know, somebody that's that's lost and just uh, refuses to believe what the Bible has to say? How 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 many times do you go back and try to witness to that person? Now, there's lots of different scenarios. We don't have time to cover all of them. Let me just let me skip to the end of the story and say there is a time. When you, you put your hands up and say, I'm done. I've done as much as I can. As much as I can. I've explained. I've, I've been patient. I've shown you everything I know to show. And you just will not receive it. So you take your hands off. You know, Jesus said you can knock the dust off. Take your take, take sandals off, knock the dust off, say, I did my part. I am clean of the blood, right? That's, that's the way Paul worded it in the book of Acts. Let them alone. Now, this was not Jesus' first interaction with them. It's not like He came to them, gave them a tract, asked for a conversation. They said no and He says, alright, forget it. I'll never touch you again. This is almost two years, a year and a half, two years of ministry and their attitude has not shifted. Actually, they've become more hardened as time has gone on. So, this statement, right, you have to Keep in mind what led up to it. Let them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. So the one blind, there's two different blind groups here. One blind group, those are the leaders, the prophets, the scribes, the Pharisees, right? The, the, the false prophets. He says they're blind. They don't see God's standard. And then the other blind is is the nation of Israel as a whole, that evil and adulterous generation, just following along blind faith. Blind faith. Yeah, whatever, the, whatever the elders say, whatever the scribes and Pharisees say, I mean, listen, they went to uh, the synagogue, they, they got a degree, they know what they're talking about, I'll just do whatever they say. That's the blind leading the blind. They're both going to end up in the wrong place. Let them alone. You don't need to, disciples, you don't need to go and try to explain that Jesus wasn't trying to be rude and that he was just trying to point the. Listen, they're offended and that's because they want to be offended. They don't want truth. They don't want to get along with God's son. So there are other people that, that do, des, I want to say deserve, but they do deserve your time and your efforts. Taking more time and effort on that group. Just to try to win their approval? Why? Go, leave them alone and go minister to someone else. Verse 15, Then answered Peter and said unto him, Declare unto us this parable. This illustration you gave about, it's not that which goes in, but that which comes out. What? what unpack that for us, Jesus. I love it when people come and ask that question. And then they come and say, Pastor, I read this in a book, or I read this in, in the book, in the Bible, and I, I think there's more to it. Tell me more about it. That's a great question. Verse 16, Jesus said, Are ye also yet without understanding? Do you not fully grasp why I said it? Verse 17, Do, you, do not ye yet understand that whatsoever, whatsoever entereth in at the mouth, goeth into the belly, and is cast out into the draft? Uh, a draft... This was like a drain, okay? But the Greek word behind this, it points to a, a private place, a private place. So it's like the outhouse. It's a toilet, basically. Jesus is making a very easy, simple point. Guys, that, that food you put in your mouth, that the whole thing that came from verse 2, that food you put in your mouth, you digest it, it ends up in the outhouse. That's it. There's there's no spiritual transaction going on there. He's saying, disciples, don't you see that? Aren't you able to see the difference between the physical and the spiritual? Verse 18, but those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. Now, look how he goes from talking about the words coming from the heart. It's also the actions. Verse 19, for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts. Look at that. You read it in the in the Old Testament about the imaginations of the heart. You know where sin starts? It starts by contemplation of something foolish. The thought of foolishness is sin. Book of Proverbs says that. Thought of foolishness is sin. Out of the heart proceed evil thoughts. So they're contemplating, formulating this plan right, to get what they want, or to hurt someone, or break this law, whatever it is. They, it starts by that contemplation. And then he goes on to talk about murders, which is, you understand, adulteries, fornications, so sexual sins of all sorts of different natures, they're covered there, thefts, false witness. So that's lying, uh, not only in a, an official sense, like taking an oath in court, but false witness in any way, just lying in all, in all fashions and forms. Blasphemies. This is railing on someone, speaking evil about them, making things up just to smear them, you know, mudslinging, that type of thing. Jesus says in verse 20, These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands defileth not a man. It's fine if you want to hold that as a preference, and it's fine even if you think, if you think uh, this. This is a cleaner way to live, and I believe God's happy with that. But then to take it a step further and say, yep, God is definitely more impressed with me, and He'll be impressed with everybody if they follow this standard too far. So he's emphasized that again. I like how one preacher said it. You are not a thief because you steal. Rather, you steal... Because you're a thief. I just chew on that for a bit. And the sin, you, can, you can take any sin and plug it into that. You, do not, you are not a murderer because you kill. Rather, you kill because you're a murderer. What's the, the, the truth of the statement lies in, in that it all starts in the heart. And then when it goes unchecked and you let it out, you actually do what, what's in your heart. That's the defiling part. Now, listen, all of us have wicked hearts, right? The book of Jeremiah. Wicked and deceitful hearts. Who can know? We, we don't know the depths of our own depravity. But God has also put a conscience within us that allows us to check the intentions of our heart and to say, ooh, is this something I can go forward with or should I put, it, put a stop to it? There, does, there are times, right, something will pop into your mind. Pop into the imagination and you say, Man, I, I don't know, is this right or wrong? It's one thing to contemplate, say, Is this bad or is this good? That, there's nothing wrong with that. Once you know it's bad and then proceed anyway to let it wander in your mind, that's the problem. That's when it begins to defile you. All right, so verse 21. Now we're going to talk about the far off getting help. Then Jesus went thence. So he went from there. And departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, if you're looking at a map uh, you, of Israel, you would go up and left a little bit uh, on the map. Tyre and Sidon are along the coast as you go up towards Syria. So this is outside of the Israeli borders now. Verse 22 And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coasts. In Mark's gospel, I believe it's Mark's gospel, you read that she's a Syrophoenician. So Phoenicia was was the name of that territory or that strip of land above Israel and before Syria, just in there. Uh, so she was Syrophoenician. So Syro, that has to do with Syria and Syrophoenician, because of course obviously Phoenicia so close to Syria, they were they were linked in that way. But uh, a woman of Canaan, this is probably by heritage, that, that, that was her people. Behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. Now, this plea that she's coming with, this request for help, many people had come to Jesus with this request. But they didn't all get the response that she got. Verse 23, But He answered her not a word. Now, I, I want to, if I can, just wax practical for a second here. There are a lot of times you go to the Lord, you have a prayer request, and you get this response. Please, God, my situation is grievous. This is paining me so much. And He answers not a word. See, there's a lot of practical Um, help, I think, in this passage. There's also a lot of doctrinal stuff, so we're going to try to cover that primarily. But be, be aware, there's two things you could be learning at once here. His disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. Jesus, she is getting in the way of what we're trying to accomplish here. We have another goal in mind. This woman of Canaan, this Gentile, this Syrophoenician, They're not disputing that she has a legitimate need. But Jesus is obviously not interested in immediately helping her. So the disciples have caught on to the fact that He's not answering. They they assume that he, He doesn't want to help her. And then say, listen, why are we putting up with this continuous begging? Send her away. Verse 24, but He answered and said... I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So he if I'm understanding it correctly he's now addressing his disciples. Although although I would say that he said this in a way that the woman could at least well she had to have overheard what he said. So if he addressed the woman or if he addressed his disciples either way I think we're going to come to the same conclusion but The reason Jesus did not immediately go and help is not because he didn't care about this woman, but I believe he's trying to make a point. I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I've I've come to minister to Jewish people. That was his target audience. But but watch what he does here. You say, well, Jesus didn't want to help her because he was a Gentile. That's racist. All right, that's where most people go. Jesus, I believe, is trying to teach everybody in this story a lesson. He or, we already know from Matthew 10, when He sent the twelve apostles out, He said, Don't go into the way of the Gentiles, and the way of the Samaritans, enter you not, but go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Why then is Jesus up in Tyre and Sidon to begin with? If He told the disciples, Don't go into the way of the Gentiles. Why is He there? Now, the, the passage doesn't tell us what his intention was in going way up north. I'm going, this is just my assumption, please don't think this is a biblical doctrine, but I would assume he's trying to get a break. He's trying to step away for a few days. We know that this is not outside of of acceptable behavior for Jesus and the disciples. They had pulled away before to try to get some, some leisure time, the Bible talks about. And now Jesus is trying to offer an explanation as to why He doesn't immediately come to this woman's aid. And He points out the purpose of His mission, the purpose of these miracles. He's trying to minister to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He's not there to fix everybody's uh, individual situation. There's a greater goal. Verse 25, Then came she and worshipped Him, saying, Lord, help me. So he's pointed out, Jesus has pointed out the dispensational aspect of his ministry, this high and lofty plan, this goal. And she comes and worships. Another another way to properly worship God is to acknowledge how much you need him. Lord, help me. She doesn't get into a theological argument with him. She recognizes the truth of what he's saying. She accepts that. Verse 26, but he answered and said, It is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. Ouch. Jesus is using the common rhetoric of his day. It was very common in those days for a Jew to refer to Gentile people as dogs, as unclean. You say, that's horrible, that's wrong, you can't do that. Well, you kind of need to know how those Gentiles lived before you, before you condemn the guiltless. Right? The Jews had several things they said about Gentiles, and some of them not nearly as nice as this. But the Gentiles, their culture, they allowed some horrendous things. So I don't think he's out of bounds by using the rhetoric, right? And this was common for a Jew to refer to a Gentile in this way. Now understand the statement he's making, and it is not meet to take the children's bread. When when a, a man would sit down at his table, he feeds his family first. He gives his children the bread. Then there's dogs sitting around the table. They can catch one of the crumbs that fall. You would never take what's meant for the children and first feed the dogs. So Jew first, then the Greek. Jew first, then the Gentile. What's the bread? The bread is Jesus, His ministry, His preaching, His teaching, all of that given to the children of the kingdom. I I should put quotes around that because the Jews considered themselves children, and they were God's spiritual children as a nation, right? God's firstborn. So they get the first helping. They're sitting at the table. And Jesus is pointing out the order of the proper order of things. He's, in verse 27, a tremendous response. She said, Truth, Lord. See, she, she understands that what Jesus has just said is he, he's, it's not blasphemy. It's not speaking evil. He's not making things up that they didn't do. He's not just name-calling. He's actually giving a fairly apt description of their behavior. Truth, Lord, what you're saying is right. The Jews should get There there were prophecies in the Old Testament that the Jews would see these miracles and hear these things that the prophet, the Messiah, had to say. So truth, Lord, they should be getting what they're getting. And there is no reason that you, you never promised any Gentile people all these miracles and all this preaching. You never promised us that, so you're not doing anything wrong, Lord. Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table she accepts the statement as brutal as it was she accepts the honest assessment of her people and says lord you never promised any miracles for me but i'm begging you please make an exception please make an exception she understands not only the plan of God, the prophecies of God, who should get what as far as the miracles and the ministry and the, and the preaching. She gets that, but she also understands the nature of the God whom she's approaching, of the Savior whom, to whom she's speaking. That even though He has this plan, this dispensational plan, this doctrinal thing, this prophetical thing that He has to fulfill, she also knows that He is a compassionate, merciful, loving God and therefore begs for mercy. I think that's absolutely wonderful. In the dispensation in which we live, right, God has not promised any of us health. He has not promised that every time we pray for healing that He will do it. He didn't promise us that. Not in the New Testament. That's not our promise. But it shouldn't stop you from begging for an exception. Say, God, please. And even, God, if you don't let one of these crumbs fall from the table to this undeserving dog. God, I'm begging for an exception. You are appealing to his nature. And uh, you'll see the response she gets. Verse 28, then Jesus answered and said unto her, by the way, by the way. I used healing as an example. That that could apply to anything, right? If God has not directly promised us something, right, in this time, this body of Christ, don't let it stop you from asking. Just bear in mind that God has, He doesn't owe you everything. He's not going to always say yes, but His nature is very kind and compassionate. Verse 28 Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great, great is thy faith. Why is her faith so great? because she accepts the way it is and also understands God's heart and nature. Great is thy faith. That's... I, there, there, I, I, would, I would want to take more time to unpack it, but I hope you let that sink in and just kind of marinate in that, in that thought for a while. Great is thy faith. Be it unto thee even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. So this is an exception to the rule that Jesus had given for his ministry. No Gentiles, no Samaritans were just going to the house of Israel, but this one. And it's not the only exception that he made. There were other Gentiles that he, that he helped. There are a few others. But every time he does, you notice, he, he mentions how great their faith is. They accept what he has said about himself, they accept what the Bible says about the Messiah and therefore he helps them. Verse 29, Jesus departed from thence and came nigh to the Sea of Galilee and went up into a mountain and sat down there. Again, I kind of think that he's trying to get a break, right? Trying to pull away from the crowd, but look, look at what happens. And great multitudes came unto him, having with them those that were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others. Now, lame... Uh, like we've read stories about lame people in the Bible. They're not able to walk. They can't lift themselves up, right? Their feet don't work correctly. Blind, you know. Dumb, they can't speak. Maimed, that's an interesting one because maimed generally means you've been injured and a certain body part doesn't work correctly. Uh, And it could very well refer to that here. However, just look at Matthew 18, verse uh, 8. Matthew 18, 8, one page over maybe. Look at what else maimed can refer to. Matthew 18, 8, Wherefore, if thy hand or or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed. So if you cut something off, you, you are deprived of that member of the body, so maimed not only does a part not work, it can, be, it can mean that, you're crippled in that sense, but if you're missing that particular body part, it would include that as well. You're crippled in the sense that it doesn't work, your body doesn't work properly in that way. And why is that interesting? Think of that miracle. I mean, blind, lame, dumb, those are great miracles as well, but if we take this to understand, or to mean that, that like missing the arm from the elbow down, Person comes to Jesus and Jesus lays hands on him or prays all over him or whatever it is, and the arm comes back. Ooh, man, there's no faking that. That's a miracle. All right, and it says in many others, back in chapter 15, verse 30, and cast them down at Jesus' feet and he healed them. Bear in mind, cast them down. that, that's not the English we would use. We placed them down, put them there. This is the Old English way of saying that that type of thing. But, um, you know, they bring them in on stretchers, whatever it is. It's not like they just threw them down there at Jesus' feet. The, the word cast, as we often think of it, it, it is that type of idea. Cast them down is almost... Um, I want to say, like us, in a sacrificial way, to say, there's nothing else we can do for these people, so we're offering them up to you. It's, it's, it kind of gives that connotation. Verse 31, "Insomuch that the multitude wondered when they saw the dumb to speak, the maimed to be whole." Now, again, that could mean just to be healthy, or all the body parts are working, but it could mean that they were missing something, and now they are whole, they are complete. Uh, the, the lame to walk and the blind to see, and they glorified the God of Israel. Now, I assume that they, they glorified the God of Israel because there were probably some Gentiles in the crowd. There were some dogs sitting around that Jewish table catching some of these crumbs, whether maybe some of their loved ones were helped, or at the very least they were allowed to bear witness to these amazing, breathtaking miracles that were happening. Now, as Matthew often does, he gives us these blanket statements about a multitude of miracles being done because he's funneling his way down to one part of a story. And you'll see why here. All this this great multitude had gathered. Matthew explains why there was such a great multitude gathered. And then he's going to give us this other specific miracle that Jesus did. Verse 32, Then Jesus called his disciples unto him and said, I have compassion on the multitude. So I'm I'm moved by their situation. Because they continue with me now three days and have nothing to eat. What a thought. They had been there for three days. Now, mind you, they are seeing some very rare and unique things happen. Right? These miracles that they're watching take place, uh, I'm fairly certain. It's worth skipping a few meals to watch this. But... I also have no doubt that while they are there Jesus is preaching and teaching to the multitude as well. They were there 3 days with no food. Man, most most people can't go 3 hours without any food. Most people, you know, they can't even make it through a church service without cake and cookies and coffee in between. <laughs> These people went 3 days with nothing to eat. Just watching Jesus do his thing was enough. Jesus Says, And I will not send them away fasting, lest they faint in the way. Now, fasting is a, the perfect description for what's going on here. They have given up food to achieve a spiritual purpose. That's what they're doing, right? That's what they're doing. He says now, and Jesus recognizes the physical um, aspect of fasting. If, if I send them away in this condition, they may not make it all the way home. They're going to get faint, by the way. So verse uh, 33, "...and his disciples say unto him, Whence should we have so much bread in the wilderness as to fill so great a multitude?" So they're not near a city of any sort, even a small one, where there might be a, a little, what we would know as a little grocery, where they can get some food for these people. You see, Jesus, we're out in the middle of nowhere. Where are we going to find food for this? You know what's strange? One chapter before, Matthew 14... Now, the timing, I don't know if it's days or months, but it's not long before this that Jesus had a different multitude that had gathered, and He took the five loaves and two fishes and fed them. And now the disciples, they're in the... The, The only difference is the amount of people, and there's not a big difference. There are thousands of people, not enough food to feed them, and Jesus says, I want to feed them. And what do the disciples say? How can we do this? This is so illustrative of how we are, right? It illustrates how we are because we learn a lesson, a great lesson. Oh, God can provide. He can do amazing things. We should trust the Lord no matter... And then a few days later, a couple months later, we find ourselves in a similar situation. And again, how can God do this? I don't see how He's going to pull this off. Verse 34, And Jesus saith unto them, How many loaves have ye? And they said, Seven and a few little fishes. I'm sure it was right about then that the disciples started to remember, oh yeah, this is how He does it. Okay, Verse 35, and He commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. Organization. Do all things decently and in order. Verse 36, and He took the seven loaves and the fishes and gave thanks and broke them and gave to His disciples and the disciples to the multitude. So this we've covered in Matthew 14, it's the same process going on. There's, there's some order. Uh, they're, they're organized in their efforts, and the disciples taking the bread, passing it out. Verse 37, "...and they did all eat and were filled, and they took up of the broken meat that was left seven baskets full." Now, again, slight difference in the story with the, with the feeding of the 5,000. You had 12 baskets that were filled at the end of it. This one, you have seven baskets. I I do not know any definitive truth that comes from the the portions that are left over. One you have seven, one you have twelve. Those two numbers are significant biblically. Seven is the number of completion, twelve is the number of the Jews, but I don't know how these stories with those numbers produces any sort of definitive teaching. So I, I simply know that there's a difference. Also the proportion of this In this story, they started off with seven loaves and a few little fishes, and they end up with seven baskets. They start off with more, end up with seven baskets. In the other story, five loaves, two fishes. So they started with less and ended up with even more, with 12 baskets. So it's almost, I'm hesitant to go here because I don't really, I can't think of a verse that would support this outright. But the more we put into it, right? the less God would put into it, and therefore you end up with less. I, I don't know if I want to go all the way there. I don't think that the, the biblical record was preserved so that we could learn that lesson. I think you just give as much as you can and let God use it as much as you can. If you, maybe one of you students, can come up with a reason why the numbers are significant, I'd love to hear it. I've often wondered what, what that might be. Verse 38, and they that did eat were 4,000 men beside women and children. So again, I've pointed out that's one of the differences in the story. Again, I'll I'll remind you that the 4,000 were men. Uh, This is not counting their family. So who knows? This could be 8,000, 10,000 people again. Verse 39, and he sent away the multitude and took ship and came into the coast of Magdala, which Magdala is on the western side of the Sea of of Galilee, so the left-hand side. Okay, that's where we're going to stop for the night. Um, I didn't see too many comments uh, for the last part of the lesson, but if anybody has a question, you're welcome to slip it in now uh, as I pray. And uh, as always, you're welcome to contact me personally if you got a question or if you figure out the proportion thing you can let me know I'd love to know more about that uh, and don't forget the attendance code if, if you've been able to listen live you need to send that code within the next 30 minutes uh, I'd appreciate your your uh, cooperation in that and uh, if you happen to listen to this lesson later if you have not yet discussed with Janae and, and explained to her why you're why you need to send the attendance code a little late please Understand, we want to be accommodating. We understand not everybody's able to listen live. Uh, so please, just take that upon yourself to, uh, to make that arrangement. All right. Father, thank you this evening for the privilege of uh, going through this chapter. Lord, help us. Help us, God, to worship you. We've seen it in this chapter a couple times tonight. We don't, we don't want to go through the motions of vain worship, Lord. We want to do it in a way that pleases you. We want to do it from the heart. Lord, thank you. There's so many exceeding great and precious promises you've given us. And Lord, even the things that you haven't promised to give us, we know what kind of God you are. Thank you for caring about us. Thank you for being so patient with us. I pray you'd have your hand on each student, everybody that's listened tonight, God, everybody that will listen to it. Lord, help us to, to take what we've learned and, and apply it. I pray to help Garrett tomorrow night bring us all back ready, hungry, and Lord, we, we want to learn more from you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.